Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason DeBono, your host, and I am joined by Nick Stagerberg and Black Swan Real Estate. Kind of an interesting background. We're going to dig into that a little bit. But Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. So Nick is a software IT kind of technical background turned really kind of full service real estate entrepreneur. Really, really cool story. But let's go back to kind of the beginning, if we can, and maybe just give us a little bit of background on, you know, coming out in, in college and entering into kind of the technical space. You know, what were your goals and career objectives at the time and how that path leads you to start dabbling into real estate? Sure. So I had a whole career in, in IT. My first uh, you know, software development startup I had the, the privilege to get in the ground floor of a a pretty successful software development startup. We went from 13 million in venture capital to 100 million in private equity sale over the course of nine years. And then after that, I had the privilege to help the Mayo Clinic create a software development startup as well. And over the course of three years, we went from you know, just a handful of people to about 13 teams of engineers that I was leading, about 75 employees. We were doing about a third of all new development for the enterprise. That would have been another you know, $100 million business if it was its own independent subsidiary. So just felt like I'd maybe conquered every mountain I could conquer in the tech world. And all along the way was kind of building a, a real estate portfolio, as people often do, kind of buy one house the next year and another house the next year and two houses the next year. And eventually this kind of became the next big startup This you know, the, the real estate portfolio grew into this whole own thing. And this is the adventure that we've been on here in the last chapter, or most recent, hopefully not the last chapter, the most recent chapter of my life. I get the privilege to operate that with my wife, Elaine, who's my, my wife and, and full partner in the business as well. Well, we're going to talk about that here in a little bit, because that's always an amazing story to hear, you know, and how spouses, and it's such a great story, and it's not something that's very common, but when it works, it works really well. And I know for you guys, it's working really well. So from a real estate standpoint, you know, you're dabbling into a property here, a property there. It's kind of the natural progression. What was the point where you kind of got to and said, all right, now's the time where we go from casual, you know, secondary real estate investment mindset to let's just dive right in. When did you make that kind of decision and what was the triggering event or series of events that caused that? Sure. So my first startup, you know, this is kind of a, a brutal talking point, but let's be real here. My first startup right before they sold the company, they fired me and seized my stock options. And I never participated in the, the windfall from that sale. And I originally got into real estate investing because I did a bunch of research on what do you do when you come into a lot of money so you don't end up like one of those people who win the lottery and then they're bankrupt the next year. And then what about like the tax implications of getting this, this really big you know, payday when the company sells? And all of my research said invest in real estate. And then when all was said and done, I had nothing from the sale of the company. I had this stupid proof of concept house that I had bought. In technology, you do what's called proof of concept. You do a really small project. You create a minimum viable product to, to take it for a test drive and say, is this something you really want to do? So before going out and like buying a big apartment complex with my tech winnings, I should probably buy a 
you know, the, the cheapest, smallest kind of worst single family home I can find, fix it up and run it and see if that's something that I really want to, you know, put a, a lot of resources towards. At first, it was a big chip on my shoulder. It was a reminder of the thing that never came to be. But then in short order, I realized, you know, this this stupid little house, we bought it for uh, $35,000. My wife and I did a, a sweat equity remodel. I was managing teams of engineers by day. My wife was studying in med school. And then we kind of clock out at that, clock in at, you know, six o'clock and go, you know, lay tile and paint and stuff at this this house that we bought and do that until midnight and then wake up and do it again. We did that for, for six weeks. Bought that house for $35,000. We spent about $17,000 on, on renovations all in, so about $52,000 all in. And then when we were done, we'd place a tenant. We did a cash out refi. This was before Burr was a word. I'm so glad that word is out there so people know kind of what that business model is now. But at the time, that wasn't, no one knew what that was. There wasn't a word for it. But we did a cash out refi and the house appraised for, I think, like $90,000. And I realized, man, I have made like $40,000 in like six weeks. And I mean, I had a comfortable salary in tech and, you know, these stock options and everything. But the tech thing was gone. I still had this house and that house was actually like the most financially successful thing I had ever done in my entire life. What I mean, if I was really brutally honest with myself because that first sale, it never came to be financially. So that house was the most successful thing I'd ever done. And we all have, I think, a cognitive bias to, I don't know, hate things that we have a negative emotional like association with. And so I, I had that for a little while with that house. And then one day, a switch flipped and I said, you know what? I love this house. This house is the ticket to freedom. All I need to do is just reproduce what I did with that house 20 times and I'm set for life. And easier said than done. It takes an extraordinary amount of work of grinding, frankly, to do that. I know there was probably a six month period, maybe longer, where my wife or I were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week because she was a resident physician at the Mayo Clinic working 60, 80 hours a week there, kind of doing the desk work of our you know, growing real estate business. Well, I was managing teams of engineers and growing a startup company by day. And then at night, I was out as a licensed real estate agent, buying properties and renovating properties, managing contractors, doing showings. I had a bag of tools in my van. I was the maintenance guy. It was a grueling period, probably about three or four years with we just worked like crazy. But by the time we got to the end of that, we had financial freedom. So that real light bulb moment was when I realized that this stupid little house that I bought was the most financially successful thing I'd ever done. And all I needed to do to really have everything I want financially is to do that again and again and again, as many times as I could, as, as quickly as I could. Well, what a, you know, I, I hear a lot of cool stories. I don't know that I've ever had anyone that bought a property with money that never came to be and not just didn't come to be. I mean, certainly that that's a very, you know, emotionally, you know, stricken issue that, you know, here you are seeing this, you know, business that you built up and these stock options. The very reason why people work for startups is that payday, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that payday was a little bit like the end of the rainbow and it just never came to be. But here you are, you've got this house you know, on top of that, I think what I always love hearing about success stories is it's so easy to kind of look and see where people are and no one wants to go back. You know, the fact that your wife, you know, is grinding it out in residency, which most people, you know, that have done anything in medical will tell you is just a brutal process, not in a negative way. It's just how it works. And to cap all that off, if that's not enough, you know, here you are and grinding it out, doing real estate books at night and 
I think this summer. And you have a couple of kiddos in there somewhere. <laughs> We've got yeah, four, four kiddos right now. Kids to feed and ferry off to and from school as if you didn't have enough on your plates. But what I love about this, and, and I hope our listeners kind of hone in on that I hear is successful IT, right? Residence for, to be a physician, two fantastic careers that would provide you plenty of income to lead a very nice, healthy life. Yet both of those were really the catalyst for true financial freedom, which is not in either of those careers. It's actually in real estate. So how about that as kind of a pullback? So what a cool background. So you guys are working your tails off, you're buying properties. What was the next tipping point, right? So you had the first tipping point of how did you go from one to many, right? What was the next tipping point where you said, all right, let's abandon and, you know, careers. I don't know if your wife is still practicing or not. Not anymore, no. So to abandon a very successful career in tech and a very successful career in medicine, what was that tipping point like? So for my wife, the tipping point emotionally was we were meeting with a broker about a a $7 million deal and we were just spontaneously able to go see the deal unexpectedly. And this was a pretty serious deal and she had to walk away. She had to leave because, you know, she had to go see a patient and then that patient stood her up, uh, no showed for the appointment. And she was just furious. And she said, I can't believe I left the site of a $7 million decision so that someone could disrespect my time. And it's okay. I mean, that's part of the job with uh, being a healthcare provider. But ultimately, the thing, you know, logistically that, you know, kind of retired her was COVID. You know, people don't talk about enough. COVID was devastating to working uh, professionals, particularly women. So we have four children, seven, five, three, and one. And you drop your kids off at, you know, know, school daycare at eight o'clock Monday morning. And then you get a call at like 10 a.m. Sorry, we've had a COVID contact. So your kids don't have COVID, but they can't come back for a week. So take your kids and go. So do I stay home with the kids? Does my wife stay home with the kids? Ultimately, she really wanted to, to stay home. And at the time, you know, even though she was a physician, like I had a higher income in real estate. So she had to step back from her career in medicine to be a, a full-time mom. And to this day, I mean, she spends a ton of time just being a mom. And she, I think, is very grateful that things kind of worked out the way they did. For me, it was very interesting. So. I left my job and I, I had a, a very good job. In fact, a lot of people you know, kind of shook me by the shoulders and said, why are you leaving this job? You have the job that everyone wants. And it, and it, was, a, it was a beautiful job. I had the chance to lead brilliant engineers for a world leading institution. Like we we're doing targeting systems for a heavy particle accelerator. We were doing this opioid calculator that could help you get off of opioids and you know, hopefully save, you know, tons of lives from people who need to titrate off of opiates. You know, my, my wife's father died of a drug overdose. So like just doing really cool things with really cool people and, and kind of getting to like name my hours and, and everything. But at the end of the day, I just had a feeling there was something more out there. I knew that I had to stop what I was doing in order for that new thing to come to my life. I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I have a, a bachelor's degree in computer science. I also have a bachelor's degree in ministry. And I just felt like that was the right thing to do. And then coincidentally, I mean, I don't really believe in coincidence. I think my path is guided, but there was a a Tony Robbins event the day after I quit my job and my wife was given a free ticket to the event. We both went and, you know, I'm a huge Tony Robbins fan. I credit Tony with, you know, half of everything that we have today. And Tony will say, you know, crazy things that it seems like he's speaking right to you. Like, you know, if you're sitting in this room, you probably feel like you're at a crossroads and you're not sure what to go, where to go. And maybe you've been there for 10 years and maybe you've been there for 10 hours, but I'm telling you the solution is to put the pedal to the metal and you will figure out the steering wheel 
very quickly and you'll learn to do U-turns. But if you just sit there and think about it, you're just going to sit at that crossroads forever. I, you know, it just felt like he was just speaking to me. So like it's time to go wide open throttle on whatever the next big adventure is. And then he'll ask you really quality questions. You know, what is like the most successful thing you've ever done in your life? And, and how can you reproduce that? And how can you serve people? How can you give? How can you grow? And if you do that, if you just create massive value for so many people, like that value will find its way back to you inevitably. That's just how God or the universe or whatever you believe in works. And the whole time Elaine and I were building this personal portfolio for ourselves, people would come to us and they would say, hey, I really want this this financial freedom thing for myself too, this, this thing that you're working on, can you help me? And we said, no, no, no. We actually made up a metaphor to turn people away. We said, you know, we've got a lot of kids. We like raising our own kids, but we don't want to open a daycare. And Tony says that you are putting your fingers in your ears and putting your hands over your eyes and you're telling yourself a low quality story. You're telling yourself things like, I don't know how to serve those people. I don't have the time to serve those people. I can't make money serving those people or that's not the reason I got into this business or whatever. And you need to ask yourself high quality questions like, how can I serve these people? Who can I serve these people? Who could I hire that could serve these people? What business model or revenue model or whatever it is would allow you to serve as many people as you possibly can. And if you do that, you're going to be outrageously successful. What can you do to create massive value for these people who are screaming at you for value? and then he says, just say yes. The last couple of people you said no to, just call them right now and just say yes. And he gets you all pumped up and you do crazy stuff at, at his events. So I, I get on the phone and I call the last person that I said no to. Like just before I went to the event, someone said, Nick, I see you're leaving this amazing job because you're financially free in real estate. Like I want that too. Can you help me? I'm like, no, no, no. Don't want to open a daycare. So I call this person back and I say, okay, I'm listening to this crazy person. I've never met him before, but he says I need to call the last person I said no to and just say yes. So I'm saying yes. And he's like, okay, just tell me where to wire the money. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't, I don't even know how this works. Like I just made this up 30 seconds ago. And this, you know, person who ultimately became an investor, they're like, I don't care. I can see where you've gone. I know that I can go on that journey with you. Just tell me what I need to do. And I'm like, well, this is a weird phone call. So I call the next most recent person I said no to exact same way. Called the next most recent person I said no to, exact same call. I'm like, how many people have I failed to serve? How selfish have I been all these years, all these people that I failed to serve? And that's when our current, you know, kind of business was born. So we started serving investors and doing the exact same thing we were doing for ourselves, buying properties that needed some TLC. We fix them up, you know, place a tenant in that property or a, a new tenant. And then we do a cash out refi and, and hold that property indefinitely. And now today we have a private equity fund with a third of a billion in assets under management. And that is truly no more complicated than that. I mean, there's a lot of details, you know, that, that gets you from here to there, but just saying, how can you create massive value for people? How can you serve people? How can you share this beautiful thing that you have for yourself with other people? And if you do that, like amazing things are going to come into your life. What a cool coincidence. And I'm with you, for lack of a better term. You know, there's always a little bit more of a guiding force that leads us all. But it is amazing how things can come together. And what seemed probably at the time quitting your job seemed like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? And, you know, you probably, uh, if you slept at all that night, uh, it, it probably wasn't longer than 30 seconds at a time. And then here you are, you wake up and Tony Robbins is reinforcing the fact that, hey man, you just stepped out of that crossroad without me having to tell you. You know, 
even though he didn't tell you anything about what you would do, how you would be successful, you know, just the, the weight off your shoulders just by hearing that. And Tony Robbins is just amazing. And if you're not, you know, listening to his stuff or subscribing to his stuff, it's absolutely worth every penny that you'll invest into it. So, you know, here you are now. Now you're committed, right? You're ready to serve, which is great. You got three people that you called that all love what you do and are ready to wire you money. And you're like, uh oh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do with it. So it's amazing how businesses are born. And so, you know, it, maybe to fast forward the story, you know, you, you built a private equity fund, you did it in a unique manner, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. And now you started serving investors. And so you took what you did to build financial freedom. And you took that model and said, let's grow it, scale it. And now, you know, hence, or I guess that was the origin of Black Swan Investments. Mm -hmm. Yep. How cool. Well, let's take a quick pause. Let's get into our quirky questions of the day. And then let's get to the other side of this and let's talk about Black Swan. And, you know, you guys are doing some really cool stuff in terms of the way you charge fees and the way that you serve the market and also the way that you give back. And I don't want that to be lost. You know, we're certainly big on when you're successful, finding ways to give back. And when you're unsuccessful, finding ways to give back. So more to come on that. But Nick, you ready? We're going to put you on the hot seat for the quirky questions. I love of the it. Day. Let's do it. All right. For those of you that submitted questions, we're going middle today. Keep sending those in. We really appreciate it. You can send those to the show producer, Maggie, Maggie with a Y at newbutrust.com with a U. All right. I love how they're in an envelope. It's very official. It's like it, you're it's, opening the Oscars or something. This is something that I look forward to. I never look in them before we start. I always like the suspense myself. So if it only entertains me, that's okay too. But here we go. Three questions. Number one. What song would be the soundtrack of your life? Bonfire Heart by, uh, is it James Blunt? People like us, we don't need, I'm trying to accelerate the song in my mind. The lyrics are very powerful, but it's a very slow song. So it's not very, not very conducive to a podcast format, but we just need someone who sparks our bonfire heart, someone who lights us on fire. I'm a high eye on a disc profile. If you haven't figured that out, I love to connect with people, to inspire people, and I think that if you just do that, everything else is probably going to take care of itself one way or another. You find really good people and you serve and inspire those people and they're going to achieve incredible things. Coming from the technology world, it's kind of the only way to leave. A skilled developer is not you know, twice as good as a mediocre developer. They're, they're 10,000 times better than a, like a mediocre developer. That's not me. That's Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates. That's their number. So you really have to inspire those people to get good outcomes. And that's just, I don't know, that's just how I live every day in my life. It's just trying to light that spark in other people's bonfire heart. Love it. Well, that, that is a great song and even better meaning behind it. So good choice there. Number two, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? That's a fruit. I love eating tomatoes. I eat several pounds of tomatoes per week. I get the little grape tomatoes at uh, Costco and eat them like chips or whatever. So uh, I love eating fruit. All right. There you go. Tomatoes are fruit. Number three, should socks and sandals ever be worn together? You know, this is going to be a controversial one. I didn't think this is going to be a controversial podcast, but I will routinely wear socks and sandals. I wear the little anklet invisible socks, but I find sometimes my sandals will get smelly if I don't wear a sock. And then also I live in Minnesota 
and I like to wear sandals more than like one month out of the year. And sometimes it's just, it's too cold. So, but I wear invisible black socks with kind of big, like keen sandals. So I try to not make it obvious I'm wearing socks and sandals. Well, that is certainly a controversial one as a Floridian here. It is as taboo as it gets, but I get it. When you get into some of the colder weather, we were chatting before the podcast and you know we were talking about the fact that you couldn't even breathe. It's so hot here. And I think, Nick, your comment was, you know, well, we, we hit 80 today. So it, uh, I, yeah. I ran my AC, uh, I don't know, 20 times this year. So and we're about done for the year. Yeah. And we're at the total opposite of that, which is our ACs aren't even shutting off anymore. Usually at night, they cool off for a little bit, but they're running around the clock. But, you know, I think it's a fair answer given the weather. So we'll agree that socks and sandals are good if the weather supports it. So Nick, you are off the hot seat. Thank you to everyone that submitted your questions. Now remember, if you do have those, get those sent in. We'll continue to get those read out. All right, Nick, let's get back into it. We talked to a lot of people on the show and at Newview here, we've, you know, met thousands of people over the years that are in the investment world. And, you know, there's always a different way to do it. And I won't say anyone does it right or wrong. You know, it's their way and, and, and that's okay. But, you know, one of the things that I think is really cool about what you guys are doing, a little bit different. I don't know enough to say you're the only ones doing it, but I think it's a very small set of people that are taking a slightly different approach on private equity, real estate deals. And that is, you know, let's start with you guys are raising money for real estate, but you do it in a fee-free environment. Talk to us a little bit about that and what's that mean? And if you don't mind, you know, answering that a lot of our listeners may not know, you know, a lot about what it is to be in a private equity real estate deal. So sure. yeah, you know, give us a little bit of a primer. What's the why behind that? And, and then what are obviously the mechanics of that from an investor standpoint? Yeah. So for investors who aren't as familiar with it, you know, the premise behind a private equity fund is typically you have a Wall Street based persona that raises a bunch of capital and puts it into a pool, sometimes called a blind pool. And then they'll typically go out and find uh, local operators, people who are, you know, let's say they're doing multifamily like we're doing, people who are buying and selling apartment buildings, and they'll place that capital with those operators and then uh, deliver a return to their investors working with that operator. And the, the theory behind that is that that private equity fund manager, that real estate Wall Street persona can probably negotiate a better deal with the operator or squeeze that operator or hold their feet to the fire, thereby delivering a greater return to the people who invest in their fund. Now, there's many different kinds of funds, many different ways to structure it. So that's a gross oversimplification of things that I, that I just stated, but that's the most common structure by far. Most of the value that that private equity fund manager creates, they keep themselves in, in, in the way of fees and, and splits. And if they're good, they do deliver like a better than average return to their investors. But the interesting thing is, even if they don't, they still get all those fees and they typically get compensated on the front end of the deal. When you purchase the apartment building, when you first invest your capital with them, there might be a year one fee, a capital placement fee, a litany of fees that they charge. And it's pure value extraction. That's all there is to it. That's where all the, the money comes from. It's just like anything, your free checking account that's not actually free because of all the fees associated with it or your cell phone plan where you can never quite figure out why it's so expensive because of all the fees associated with it. It's, very, it's a very opaque way to do business. And I saw a lot of that in my tech background. And I saw the way these groups operate, which is frankly, I think they're often not looking out for what's best for a community, for the, the asset. They're, they're looking to basically extract as much profit, squeeze as much profit as they can. You hear about, you know, uh, different capitalist sharks. You know, there's this terrible 
fire in Maui. And there are a bunch of private equity funds right now. They're trying to buy up, you know, burnt land in Maui right now. And that's, that's kind of the image of it. And I have personally observed an unsustainable trend in our society. So public equities used to be, you know, kind of the, the king. And I would say there's been a, a, a huge flight of capital to, to private equities. And if you like launched a burger joint, you know, 30 years ago, maybe you would have done like a franchise model. Today, you would do a private equity fund. So private equity is kind of gobbling up all of the assets in our society and all of the ideas and all the people, all the employees in our society. And all of that is being squeezed up to the top. It's making the rich richer. I just have to ask myself, couldn't it be done differently? Does it have to be this way? Elon Musk does not need to sell an electric car to every person in America in order to get people buying electric cars. He just has to sell enough of them that someone notices, that Ford and GM notice and say, shoot, well, we better start making electric cars. And someone says, oh, man, that Tesla, it's pretty fast. I, I drive a Tesla, full disclosure. Someone says, oh, that Tesla, that's pretty fast. That's a neat car. I might want to go get one of those. They don't even buy a Tesla. They go buy the, the Ford electric vehicle. And so we don't believe that we have to go raise all of the capital. We just have to raise enough to show that it doesn't have to be that way. So our fund, we put our tenants first, and then we put our investors after that. And then we put ourselves only after our tenants, our investors. We have no fees whatsoever. We have no asset management level fees, and we don't get any profit until our investors have gotten a full return of capital. We are true stewards, fiduciaries of our investors' funds. And it's mathematically impossible for us to derive a profit while our investors you know, lose money. Our investors have never lost money, but with a typical private equity fund structure, it's totally possible for you know, the general partner or syndicator to make money while their limited partners, their passive investors lose money. And that's just not mathematically possible with the way that we do business. I'll tell you, we forego a lot of compensation. It's not a cash-rich you know, scheme on the front end of the deal. But we will be handsomely rewarded on, on the back end of the deal. And we don't need that money. We're very, I don't know, humble Midwesterners. We have a very comfortable lifestyle by Midwestern standards. We don't need millions of dollars in fees to go buy a boat or something like that. We're very happy with what we have. But we would love it if we could just change the world in some small way. 5% of our fund goes to charity and 5% goes to our staff in profit share. Again, this is trying to fix some of these imbalances that we see out there in the world. And Last year, we built a school. We found a, an abandoned 40,000 square foot office building, did an adaptive reuse, helped the school move in, uh, got teachers and parents you know, ripping up flooring and repainting walls. And we actually just closed on financing for that school two weeks ago. And it appraised for $8 million. We paid $5 million for it. We were $5.1 million all in. So we didn't give $3 million to that school. But because of our efforts and the efforts of tons of other people, that school now has $3 million in equity they didn't have before, and they are set for the next half century with a beautiful campus that's going to serve them for generations to come. And there was a lot of direct financial support from you know from our charitable giving, but, but more than anything, bring our, our time and expertise leveraged against that give back capital. So those are some of the things that make us different, like radically different from any other private equity fund or, or real estate syndication that I've seen out there. Well, what a cool, you know, way to structure and model your business. And, you know, every business has a way to operate and every business charges fees, you know, in different ways. But, you know, the component that to me really speaks, you know, volumes is that giving back, you know, it's giving back to not just your team that supported the transaction along the way, but it's also giving back in a charitable way. You know, we're big on giving back. We believe that there's more to any sort of revenue based business than just top and bottom line. And so if you can make a difference out in the world, 
good for you and thank you for what you're doing. And hopefully everybody listening, regardless of where you are in the income meter or where you are in the business meter or on the investment meter, you know, start thinking about how you can give back. And, you know, I'm always reminded that, you know, we talk about it in, in our charity is, you know, it's time, energy and money, right? I mean, everybody has one of those. Some people are fortunate to have two and some are fortunate to have all three. And so there's no excuse not to be able to participate and give. And I really love, and I'm going to come back to it, but that, you know, I love the school because it's not just the school, it's the blood, sweat and tears that the teachers and the parents got to go in and rip out carpet and paint walls. And, you know, it made it a lot more ownership for them, not in dollars, but just in effort. So nobody's going to walk into that school anymore and think, you know, here's someone that wrote a check and built a school. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's, hey, this community came together. And the catalyst of that was people being good stewards of money and real estate still becomes that backbone because without the deals on the back end, right, that money doesn't exist to go spark that opportunity. So let's talk real estate. You know, where are you buying? What are you buying? You know, what's the market look like today? What does that look like? You know, how can our listeners gain some understanding and strategy around opportunities, uh, you know, for them to go out and hopefully execute against? Absolutely. So what I always tell people is to try to find your unfair advantage. Everyone has something, a comparative advantage that sets them apart. And whatever that thing is, you need to you need to apply that advantage. And we could talk about macro economy and, you know, where we are in the market cycle and how we're dealing with that, if, if that's valuable to you. But what I find is, as long as you have that comparative advantage that you cultivate, that you sharpen, you're going to be really successful in any phase of the economic cycle. So we're very vertically integrated. We have a, a real estate sales team. We're in the top you know, one third of 1% of all real estate sales teams in Keller Williams, which is the largest real estate organization on earth. We're in Gary Keller's personal mastermind, which is, I would say, the most elite you know, real estate mastermind on earth. That gives us an insanely unfair advantage that we can just go chat with Gary Keller, probably the most powerful person in real estate on earth, and say, hey, what do you think about this? Uh, could you help us with this? It took years for us to cultivate that unfair advantage. Uh, building a property management company is a very thankless, unprofitable, grueling endeavor. It is not where the money is made in the business. But because we own a property management company, we're able to buy the deals that other people can't buy. So just as an example, last year we bought a Douglas Trail Townhomes. This was a Section 42 LIHTC affordable community, tax credit community. And is a hundred townhomes. We bought it for I think eleven million dollars, and about fifty percent of the units there were in rent collections. And I'll just tell you, you cannot buy that asset unless you own a property management company. No third-party property management company is. And any assumption you can make about that community is probably accurate with just those few data points that I've given you. There is, I'll just say, an incredible opportunity to serve and an incredible opportunity to create value when wading into a situation like that. And because we own the property management company, we're able to, to say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to lean in. We're going to serve these people like they've never been served before. We're going to offer them an amnesty. Some of them owed you know, $10,000, $15,000 in unpaid rent. They hadn't paid rent in years through the entire pandemic. And we bought it in November. And I really like that because we're vertically integrated, we have control and we could say, you know, we're going to give these people 60 days. There's no way I'm going to buy an apartment building and just start evicting people and they're getting you know, kicked out on Christmas Day. So we're going to give them 60 days to just let them know there's a new sheriff in town. If we can, you know, just get them making some kind of payment, you know, we'd love for them to stay. If not, 
you have through the holidays to get your house in order. And then finally, you know, serve those people through that, that entire transition process, whatever that looked like. It was different for each individual person. And now today, we've turned over the majority of those residents. We're renovating the units. We've spent over a million dollars in the last nine months on that. So we paid $11 million for it. We've already spent a million dollars in renovations to give you some idea of the incredible scale of work that was required in that particular community. And I'm going to guess that community is probably worth about $15 million today. So we've made you know $3 million in about nine months. That's not chump change. And we did that just by cultivating an unfair advantage, by owning the property management company. So for listeners out there, what's your unfair advantage? Do you live in an area that's a particularly favorable area to invest? Do you have a wealthy uncle in your life that might want to invest with you? Do you have a a set of skills? Like if you are in any of the trades, if you are in the finance industry, for example, you probably have a good idea of how to get a really favorable loan. Maybe you know someone, maybe you heard some crazy guy on a podcast ranting about changing the world through private equity. And you think, man, maybe I want to invest with this person. That's an unfair advantage that you have. Not many people out there know who we are. That's why we do podcasts and you could potentially invest with us. That's very self-serving revelation, of course. But who you know is almost certainly going to be your comparative advantage at any step of the game. And so just open up your Rolodex and ask yourself, who are the people in my life that can help me carry my real estate investment journey forward? Anyone here is welcome to jump on our website, block time with me. If there's anything I can do to provide you with value, you can go to meetblackswan.com, just block time on my calendar. But if you have someone in your life that is very successful in any aspect, just go chat with them and figure out what is my unfair advantage? What is my comparative advantage that I can leverage to be really successful in any phase of the market cycle, in any geography, in any environment, you can always be successful. You just have to figure out what's your advantage. I love that. And from a listener standpoint, Nick is so spot on. And what does make you different? And whether we like it or not, there's not a single successful person that carries traits that somebody doesn't have similar to, uh, or maybe not even close in the same realm, but they got other traits that will balance out and and give them the opportunity to go out and conquer new things. So, um, you know, without question, that's such a great way to really look at the world. And what I love is that question was really around real estate. And you answered it not by missing the mark, but by nailing it without actually talking about real estate, you know, which is great. I mean, someone asked me earlier today, uh, we have an intern here in the building and, and I'll just share a quick story if that's okay. But he took the time and said, hey, I just want to sit down and ask some questions. And I thought, first of all, you are light years ahead of everyone else because you're asking, you know, he's young. And the fact that he wanted to ask as many people in the building that have different levels of experience and tenure and time that can share and help guide but you know, he said, what's the best investment? And I said, it's an impossible question to answer. I said, what's the best investment? That's personal. You can make money in anything, right? Now, are there asset classes that you know, may be better or worse? Of course. But in the grand scheme of it all, there's a million and one ways to make money in real estate alone. Forget about any other asset class. And so you know, hearing you kind of talk through that and saying, hey, it's not about real estate. It's about you. Right. And if the market's good, that's okay. If the market's bad, that's okay. But if you find your differentiator, if you find what's unique to you and then apply it to, yeah, really an interesting conversation to have no more than 30, 40 minutes before we hopped on this podcast. So there goes another one of those coincidences that neither of us really believe in, Nick. So, you know, I love what you guys are doing. I admire the fact that you guys are taking a different approach and 
And yes, you know, I think it's Steve Jobs that said, when it comes to changing the world, be careful, right? You may actually be just crazy enough to do it. So I hope that you're right. I think the, the positivity that you bring and the way that you're looking to change the world, not to knock anyone that's charging fees or not to knock anyone that's, that's making yep. money, you know, everybody reserves the right to do that. But if you can give back and put a little money in your pocket while doing good in the community, I think that's an overall win for everybody. We'll throw all your contact info into the show notes as well. I know you had mentioned uh, your website and stuff, but we'll make sure that people want to reach out directly to you. We'll give you all that contact info as well. As we come to close, one thing that we do to wrap up every single show is we put our guests on the hot seat for one more time for what we call our Learn Before You Burn segment. This is where you get an opportunity to share the lesson and experience that you learn the hard way. But hopefully we can share that with our listeners where they can take the actual lesson from it, but maybe not have to go through the same experience. So Nick, what would you give our listeners as your learn before you burn guidance before we close out here? Would you like a small mistake that might be a little more relatable or a big mistake that's probably not so what a typical listener is going to run to on a daily basis, but it's still a huge mistake? Let's go big, right? Go big or go home. So one of our projects, you know, we had kind of like an incremental approach to our renovation on it. We were just renovating a few units at a time. And we really, you know, we've done over 200 renovations in the last 12 months. So we do a, just a, a staggering amount. And they're deep value add renovations, you know, new cabinets, new counters, you know, quartz counters, custom. It's a lot. It's a whole lot. There's, you know, hundreds of people doing something somewhere for us today at, at this moment. And we typically have like an incremental approach to renovating an apartment building. And so we have this very large project, one of the largest renovations we've ever done. And we thought, let's go big. You know, what would Tony Robbins tell you to do? I don't know. So we, you know, just vacated a ton of units and we thought there'd be like this economy of scale that went with having like 30 concurrent renovations. We have 29 units in that one building down for renovations and it has been just a complete disaster. So when you have that big of a job site, what happens is the city takes notice. When you have so many trucks and workers and stuff in an occupied apartment building, like the tenants are happy. They're not complaining, but the city inspectors in their vans just drive by and they're like, huh, why are there like 18 trucks at that apartment building that is like an occupied apartment building? And we do our due diligence in pulling permits and stuff like that. We're very careful about pulling permits, but like any good you know remodeler, we're very careful in only bring, pulling permits when we absolutely have to and, and making sure we don't open up walls because then you you know discover things and you have an obligation to, to upcode. But of course, when the city inspector walks the property, they are going to have a different eye for those things than you will. So like they walked one unit and they're like, well, you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're doing new flooring and new cabinets, and new counters, and you're doing the new bathroom. And I'm like, yep, but it's just finishes, right? And we have licensed electricians and licensed plumbers. They're doing all the work. And they're like, well, you need a permit for this or this. And I'm like, no, uh, no, we don't. And I'm like, yes, you do. And we got into a dispute and they issued a stop work order for us. And we've got 29 units that we're renovating right now. And the city is shutting down our job site. And, you know, we're escalating this to every possible fixer contact we have with the city and the city is upset with us and they don't quite know why. And ultimately, the inspector in the field was wrong, but, you know, he's not going to let his ego come into you know question. And so he's going to stick to his guns. At the end of the day, we ended up pulling a permit for a furring wall. So you have like a demising wall between units. And if you modify a demising wall, you need to pull a permit for that. And they said that we need to pull a furring wall is just we have like a wall and we put up another wall in front of it. And that's a strategy for avoiding cutting into the wall. 
So we'll, you know, we'll trim things back and do whatever we can. And then we'll just put up like a little, you know, one inch wall. So I have like a smooth surface to fasten cabinets to and stuff. So it's a, it's literally a strategy for avoiding pulling a permit. So they made us ultimately pull a permit for a furring wall just so that we had to have something to pull a permit for. And now the city has to come back time and time and time and time and time again, because we now have an open building permit on it. So we need to keep checking in with them so they can come in and see, ah, yes, you do not need to pull a permit. And they're coming up with all kinds of reasons why we have to pull permits that are trumped up the trade skills. And it's, it's just a nightmare. So, you know, we've lost a quarter of a million dollars in, you know, kind of lost rents. You could think of it that way. At the end of the day, the project's going to be super successful because we're doing a deep value add. So, when we're done, we're going to make this project worth so much more money that that quarter of a million dollars is a rounding error in comparison. It's a big failure, but the nice thing about doing deep value add is is when you add that much value, there's a huge margin for error. But but our it was our mistake to go that fast, to go that big. I don't even necessarily know how to fix that in the future other than to just go slower, to do our remodels kind of in stages. Your, your typical you know, syndicator out there, they're kind of repainting the cabinets, repainting the counters, repainting the tubs. So literally there's just like a paint van in there. We're doing plumbing and electrical and HVAC and we've got all these skilled trades out here. So we're actually doing it like the right way. But then the city kind of you know, has penalized us for that because we've just we're, it's just such a visually apparent job site that there's so much going on. So that's a big mistake that we're in the midst of trying to sort out right this second. It'll, it'll be okay. We're doing really well on the project otherwise, but that's a pretty monumental mistake, I guess, that, that we're actively figuring out. I'm glad we went big because I think, you know, while that may not necessarily be apples to apples for, you know, where and what people are doing currently, but I think it does underscore the fact that, you know, sometimes, you know, biting off more than you can chew can actually be biting off more than you can chew. And, you know, while your intentions were pure, you know, you certainly knowing what you know now, you would have never went that route. And on the other side of that, if, if you didn't have this issue and you knocked them all out, your team would be high-fiving about the fact that you probably just made a quarter of a million dollars more money because you've got these up and running and you've improved rents and you've moved, accelerated the rent cycles forward. So, you know, with great risk come great reward and sometimes with great risks come headaches and challenges. So I'm sorry that, uh, that you're at that part of the process, but hopefully you can get that resolved and move through. And I appreciate you sharing that. And listeners, remember, you know, every deal has landmines, right? Every deal, small, big, it doesn't matter. So yep, be mindful of those. That's a great learn before you burn. Thank you, Nick, for that. We are going to wrap things up today. Really appreciate you being on. Really appreciate the approach that you and and your wife are taking and your business model. And yeah, if you guys want to reach out to Nick or get in touch with him in any way, you can do so by uh, just pulling up all the contact info in the show notes. Nick, thanks for being here. Thanks. It's been an honor and privilege. Wonderful. Well, for our new listeners, please push that like, share, subscribe button. We'd love to have you part of the community as we continue to bring guests on like Nick to help impart their wisdom and experience and help us in our journey to building wealth and using alternative assets as a platform. As always, we want to remind everybody that it's not just good alternative asset strategies that get you to wealth. It's also keep more of what you earn by making good tax strategies. Uh, which is really the combo and the difference between making money and building wealth. So thanks everybody for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing everybody next week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content and we'll see you next week.